0: If you missed our Achieving Optimal Health conference this year, it's not too late to catch Ian Lavansant's incredible keynote. The conference archives are now available. This will give someone full, unlimited access to the entire day of talks. You will learn about great tips on how to rejuvenate your body with sleep essentials, why the world is so concerned about loneliness, how to keep your brain young, inside information on carbohydrates and how we can permanently lose weight by learning how to intake, carbs at the right time of day, the six most important relationship habits, how to stay mindful in an uncertain world, everything you need to know about immunity and your gut health and how to put yourself on a mastery path toward joy, peace, and love. You can purchase the archives on our website for $29 by heading over to bbrconsulting.us.
1: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people
0: and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone.
1: Lisa Rankin MD is a physician, mystic speaker, founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute and the not-for-profit Heal at Last. She is a New York Times best-selling author of a new book called *Sacred Medicine: A Doctor's Quest to Unravel the Mysteries of Healing*. Today, Lissa will join us to talk about her new book, a guide offering hope for healing when all else fails. Welcome, Lissa, to HealthGig. Trish and I are thrilled you're joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. We're so excited about your new book, Sacred Medicine, and we're going to talk about that today, but we want to start by having you tell us your story and uh, what made you interested in 360-degree healing.
2: Oh, gosh. I wrote a whole book called The Anatomy of a Calling that answers that question, and it is not a simple answer, but I guess I'll say briefly, you know, I was raised with kind of fundamentalist parents. My mother was a fundamentalist Christian. My father was a fundamentalist doctor. And so my upbringing was very sort of dogmatic and it was all religion and all faith and everything spiritual lived in the church. And then it was all science and all medicine, conventional medicine. And there were, never the twain shall meet, like anything in the middle was considered charlatanism and quackery by my father and the work of the devil by my mother. So most of my life, of course, I have been exploring those intersections, like my rebellion against the fundamentalism of, I left the church when I was 18, but I never left my spirituality. And I left the hospital when I was 37, but I never left conventional medicine. So I've been trying to find those bridges of nuance of like how do we find the baby in the bathwater of a lot of these polarized dogmatic points of view and when i quit my job as an obgyn in 2007 and i kind of started this quest to educate myself because i was very indoctrinated in my medical education i went i did my residency at northwestern they taught us the northwestern way which of course was better than the harvard way So it wasn't just the indoctrination of conventional medicine. It was very specific, like the Northwestern way. And it was very cultic. It was like, this is the one way, the only way. And if you even question it or challenge it, you're a heretic and you're exiled. So I was very much, I look back on my 30-year-old self, and I was this arrogant little whippersnapper, like going into my new hospital thinking I was all that and challenging all these doctors that had 20 years of experience on me To show them they were not practicing the Northwestern way. Like it was very smug and superior and inflated and self-righteous. So it's a little embarrassing to admit that. But what is the Northwestern way or how is that different? It was the best OBGYN program in the country at the time. They go to a great deal of effort to train us how to practice evidence-based medicine. So, lots of statistics, lots of knowing how to read the journals, lots of knowing how to debate and identify bad science, and absolute devotion to only that which is evidence based. So, anything like (laughs) anything that can't be objectified and measured and proven in a randomized controlled clinical trial is worthless, Mm -hmm. according to that dogma. And so, of course, in my When I was researching Mind Over Medicine, which was sort of my New York Times bestseller that was on PBS and 35 languages, and it's gotten a lot of attention, that one was my attempt to find everything in the evidence base, to find what is in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association, what is the good science proving that our bodies are equipped with natural self-healing mechanisms? And what are the scientifically proven ways that we can make our bodies miracle-prone? Really being proactive about taking steps to not only like the traditional health nut steps, right? Obviously, like avoid toxins, eat nutritious, nutritionally dense foods, mostly plants, exercise, get enough sleep, take your vitamins, whatever, go to conventional medicine, follow the public health guidelines, all of that kind of stuff but also the things in the realm of relational healing and avoiding toxic relationships and not putting yourself in soul-sucking job situations where you're violating your ethics and in chronic fight or flight and making sure that we're living in alignment with our spirituality, with our morality, that we're in healthy relationships and getting the benefits of that, that we're leveraging things like meditation or sexuality or creativity or these other practices that can benefit our health? And what is the science around all of that? So that was originally part one of Mind Over Medicine was everything science can prove. And part two was all the things in the realm of healing that science has no idea how to prove. And at some point that book became very unwieldy and somebody on my team was like, "Lisa, this is two books. So Sacred Medicine is actually the sequel to Mind Over Medicine. But once I realized it was a separate book, I was like, oh my God, if I wanna do this right, I need to take a decade going around the world and trying to find the tools in the world's medicine box that they didn't teach me at Northwestern that might not fit into the evidence-based medicine category but that might just be because science doesn't know how to measure these things yet, or science hasn't, we, don't have, we haven't had funding to try to measure these things yet, or maybe there are things we can't even measure, like the consciousness of the healer. Like I have a theory that, I haven't said this or written this publicly yet because of the pandemic, but I wrote an article right before the pandemic, basically making a case for evidence-based medicine, the whole model of it, being based on certain assumptions that I think are wrong. Like the assumption that we can separate the person delivering the medicine from the medicine. In other words, there's an assumption that if we're testing, let's say acupuncture or a pill, there's an assumption that if we have hundreds of patients and dozens of practitioners delivering the thing, that the outcome is based on the acupuncture or the drug and I'm saying, what if it's actually based on the human?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. So
2: I di- I was a doctor in pharmaceutical trials back when I was in practice, and they fired me because my <laughs> placebo effect was too high. And mm-hmm. so I have a theory that we can't actually separate some of those things. And as I talked about in sacred medicine, I have some theories about the placebo effect
1: mm.
2: that it may not be at all. We don't know what it is. It's a medical mystery. And I wrote a lot about it in Mind Over Medicine. But I have a theory that it may not even be possible to separate the people in the clinical trial from one another. And there's a whole chapter about William Bankston and the placebo effect and his controls and his studies, where all the control mice in his scientific studies were getting their cancer cured also. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I have a theory that places like Lourdes might be an example of kind of a field effect of people with shared intention to heal and shared spirituality and shared sort of humility and, and that maybe there's something in that field effect that is related to the placebo effect.
0: Wow. That is radical. That's yeah. so <laughs> radical. <laughs> Has well, as the Northwestern um, folks get called you up yet? Uh, not yet, but maybe they will.
2: <laughs> but it's, and again, like- I, d- I don't, I want to I say I was very well trained. I'm so grateful for that education because I, I know how to read the data. Yes. And during the pandemic, yeah. that was really important to be able to separate the science from the non-science and the fake science and the pseudoscience. And so... Kudos to Northwestern
0: for... Absolutely. And probably I wonder if you think without that background, you wouldn't be able to ask these questions you're asking and the changes you're making, Right, I think is what we're hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very grateful.
1: What I'm hearing you talk about is treating the person, not the patient. Absolutely. Which is such a, uh, you know, even today, a
0: unique approach and you don't see it much. It's so true. And even recently, the idea that your doctor, and and there's a lot of compassion for our doctors too, because they are overworked and especially now with all the restrictions, but the fact that they're still treating the scan and not the person is another way of saying treating the person, not the condition. Nine years into training
2: doctors, I run a program called the Whole Health Medicine Institute so I work with most of my clients are doctors and most of my friends are doctors. So I'm still very much a doctor, you know, I just practice a different kind of medicine. Now, I, I basically function as a trauma healer a trauma therapist for physicians. And during COVID, this has been incredibly difficult because they're on the front lines and they're burned out. And so many people turned on them. So many people in the new age, especially were like COVID is a hoax and Our doctors are the enemy and they're putting their lives on the line every day. So it's been really hard.
0: Yeah, really hard for them.
1: Well, you touched on some of the things that are in this book that is a wealth of information. But how do you want people to use this new book? The original draft of this book was
2: 250,000 words and an average book is 80,000. So it was basically (laughs) three books. (laughs) And so when we had to make a lot of really hard editorial decisions and I might put out like a substack or something from all the cut material and one of the main editorial decisions we made is we want to make a clinically relevant book. So my goal is that anybody who has failed to get relief from conventional medicine or alternative medicine and they're still symptomatic and suffering that my goal is that I wanted to introduce some practical self help tools that people can try at home to be part of their larger prescription for health and in, in the in mind over medicine, I teach about the six steps to healing yourself and I revised mind over medicine in twenty twenty so i had to, I moved the steps around and changed them a bit, but one of them is sort of making your whole kind of whole health prescription of everything in your life that might need to be changed and every medicine that might be helpful, including conventional medicine, but also including maybe things like energy healing or shamanic healing or indigenous healing or some of these other things that are more in the realm of sacred medicine or spiritual healing. And that also led me into the realm of sort of cutting edge trauma therapies, the whole world of trauma informed medicine and what happens when trauma survivors who have physical symptoms because of the nervous system dysfunction that comes from chronic fight flight or freeze in the nervous system as Bessel van der Kolk wrote about in the when the body keeps the score what happens if we treat the traumas of those people is it possible to reverse trauma related illness by treating the traumas and reversing the illness i really wanted to just try to say if you've tried everything in conventional medicine and you've tried everything in the health nut world, here's some things you might not have tried. But I also, it's also a memoir. So I basically am telling the story of t- gallivanting around the world for the past 10 years, working with shamans in Peru, Qigong masters from China and going to lords and Balinese healers and indigenous healers all over the world and trauma therapists and gurus and that whole realm. But I also, part two of the book is really about the shadow of sacred medicine. And that was a surprise to me. I went in very sort of gullible and idealistic. And I kind of had this story in my mind that if people can cure cancer with hands-on healing, they must be Jesus. And that must mean that they're enlightened or they're in some way, have a level of ethics or morality. And I would like to debunk that Categorically, right from the beginning, just because somebody can cure cancer with spiritual healings, it says absolutely nothing about their ethics. Mm-hmm. As we can see from John of God being in jail for 500
1: counts Yes. Of yeah. Just watched that documentary. So I'm. Yeah, it's harrowing. It's yeah. harrowing. yeah.
2: And I was absolutely shocked, like the, the level of corruption and abuse in that realm is far worse than it is in conventional medicine. Like I, I, talk, right. frequent, I talk frequently about the corruption in, in conventional medicine. It's way worse in this unregulated wild west realm of spiritual healing. And even certain trauma therapies, there's a bunch of podcasts out right now, sort of exposes about psychotherapy abuse or psychedelic assisted therapy abuse and things like that. So abuse of power happens everywhere. But it especially happens in this realm. So part two is really about if you're wanting to engage with some of these modalities, how do you stay safe? Mm. And how do you protect yourself from predators? Because there are a lot of predatory, corrupt con artists in that realm.
0: And there's no board certifications, so right. there's no way to report
2: them. Right. Right.
0: The, the, Dora, that was what you were talking about this morning when we were hiking. Yeah. She was saying that was one thing we really wanted to highlight, just to understand that. And how do you know, right, is what you were wondering. Exactly. But
1: some of the things in the book were just riveting. So can we talk about how you become miracle prone?
0: Mm. <laughs> Love that
2: well again i've been studying that for 10 years so i would say read mind over medicine and read sacred medicine <laughs> and that will answer that question it literally is hundreds of thousands of words of answer to that question there's no soundbite for that but i would say if i had to pick a sound bite i would say we have all been traumatized all of us because if you live in this culture full of systemic racism and being built on colonization and genocide and species extinction and nature disruption and environmental chaos and climate crisis and we've all been traumatized in some way with certain kinds of developmental trauma where we had maybe controlling parents or parents who didn't love us unconditionally, parents who themselves were traumatized. So it's not just the adverse childhood experiences that we have the most scientific data about, those things like child abuse and sexual abuse and divorce in the home and parents in jail and mentally ill parents and all of that. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way I define trauma, we've all been impacted, our nervous systems have all been impacted by trauma. And when our nervous systems are impacted by trauma, that impacts the development of our vagus nerve, it impacts our brain development, it impacts the functioning of our immune system and our endocrine system and our microbiome. It it basically has multi-organ system end results in the body. So like people sometimes get insulted if you say you have chronic illness, go see a therapist. They're like, are you saying it's all in my head? oh, no, 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 no. It is absolutely somatic. It is absolutely, absolutely in your body, in, in your nervous system, all over your whole body. But a lot of people don't realize that there is at least anecdotally, this was what really got me when I met Asha Clinton at an energy psychology conference. And I had no idea what energy psychology was, but they wanted me to be a keynoter. They were like, you're practicing energy psychology. I'm like, I am. I don't know what that is. So I met Asha Clinton and a doctor from Duke that I had known for many years said, you have to go to this workshop with this Princeton grad, you know, this Princeton, former Princeton professor who is a psychotherapist with a PhD who is using energy psychology as primary treatment for cancer in people who have, for whatever reason, have said no to conventional medicine or she's treating them as an adjunct to conventional medicine. And I was like, what? Energy psychology to treat cancer? And she's trained a whole bunch of therapists how to do this multi-causal illness protocol. And I went and watched her and I was like, it was a huge sort of a pivot in my research because I was like, oh, wow. I need to understand what the cutting edge trauma therapists, uh, Peter Levine and somatic experiencing and Asha Clinton and advanced integrative therapy and Richard Schwartz and internal family systems and some of these cutting edge trauma therapies that are not taught in graduate school for people who go to school for therapy. And anecdotally, when you talk to those therapists and you say, hey, when you're working with trauma survivors who are chronically ill and you're treating their traumas, what happens to their illness?" Now that's an anecdote. That is not evidence-based. Those are just stories. Right. But a lot of times our what ultimately becomes evidence-based medicine starts with a whole bunch of stories and scientists who start to get curious about the stories. So that's my disclaimer it's like we, we have lots of proof that trauma causes disease, clear, open, and shut case Clear evidence-based data, trauma causes disease. Tra- Most disease is, is caused by trauma, not all. Some people live next to a toxic waste dump and they get sick because they live next to a toxic waste dump or they're born with two copies of a recessive gene and they have cystic fibrosis. That's a genetic disorder. So not all, but the majority of reasons that young people, especially who are sick, if the body breaks down young, that is almost always related to trauma, if it's not genetic or environmental. And most people aren't talking about that. So I think we need to be doing a much better job of screening for trauma and doing more research into creating more of an evidence base around that. Again, difficult to separate. If we study IFS, is it the IFS or is it the person delivering the IFS? Very difficult to peel those things apart when you're in that subjective realm of healing but i would say to anybody who has who is still suffering and has not tried it there are chapters about ait there's chapters about ifs i mentioned somatic experiencing the chapter on that got cut i had a whole chapter on emotional freedom technique and oh, that got cut okay so, <laughs> cuz on page
0: 250 you have settle your nervous system with somatic experiencing yeah.
2: i had a whole chapter but it got oh, cut and i had yeah. a whole chapter about
0: eft but it got cut it was just too long too much yeah. okay yeah even your just your points on this you're right kind of speaks to what you're talking about and as you're saying most of us have had yeah. some sort of trauma i mean or we have trauma and this is really helpful we're traumatized by our culture
2: look what's happening right now with putin and ukraine it is traumatic to live in this world right now where megalomaniacs are abusing power and violating boundaries At the most global scale and we are doing that to ourselves inside our own parts where we are bullying vulnerable inner children in ourselves and every scale in between. Those power imbalances are creating a tremendous amount of trauma and we're fortunately some, especially during the pandemic, we really started reckoning with the Me Too movement. With Black Lives Matter, with guru abuse, and priests who abuse their power, and all kinds of spiritual abuse, and CEOs who abuse their employees, and movie producers who abuse their movie stars, and like the abuses of power are everywhere, and it starts in the family. And I know I am one of those people who had an abusive mother who was narcissistic and controlling and dominating, and abused her power over me, and that is... Developmental trauma, even though my A score is zero. Oh,
0: good point. I really wanted
2: to point that out to people because it looked like I had the perfect childhood. Like I literally grew up at Disney World. My family all worked there. But my developmental trauma burden has caused a tremendous amount of illness and suffering and mental illness and suicidality and things like that in me. Nobody ever caught that on a screen. So there's, I tried my best. I'm not aware of a developmental trauma screen like we have the ACE score. I did my best with some expert therapists to come up with a developmental trauma quiz. Mm -hmm. And it's very triggering for people because they're like, ow, ow, ow. I didn't know I was hurt, but yes, that happened to me. So I love the way Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry have sort of reframed that instead of what's wrong with me, what happened to me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we need to develop a, a, a tolerance and a resilience to be able to examine what happened to me and get treatment because it is reversible. It is treatable. And my hope is that at least some of the time when we do that difficult work, people's symptoms seem to get better. Mm. So the Northwestern people would say, that is not an evidence-based comment. (laughs) That is my opinion. (laughs) That is my hypothesis. (laughs) Got it. The other thing that I really made clear in the book is that is deep dive work. It is like whales going down to the bottom of the ocean. Like it's difficult, it's triggering, it's shadow work. We have to look at not only the ways we've been victimized, but the ways in which we've perpetrated trauma. And a lot of the people that had radical remissions because of trauma treatment were really doing the work on the ways in which they were perpetrators of trauma. That's hard. And I've had to do that. I'm like, oh, the ways I got hurt, I've hurt other people. Ow, ow, ow. And it's difficult to do that. And so the practices in part one are what I call energy transfusions. So I like to compare it to if you're a doctor and you're in the emergency room and somebody comes in pale and tachycardic and white as a ghost and you do a blood count and their hemoglobin is six and it's supposed to be 13. They're anemic, right? They don't have enough blood. And the first thing you're going to do is give that person a blood transfusion before you do anything else. Cause that's life threatening. Their heart is working too hard. So you tank them up, but if you just tanked them up and sent them home, that would be medical malpractice. So I think a lot of energy healers are tanking people up and sending them home. And that is medical malpractice. So you also have to, if you're a good doctor, you got to figure out what, where are they losing blood from? Or why is their bone marrow not making more blood? Or is something attacking the blood cells? And you have to do a whole workup to figure out why are they anemic? So I think a lot of people get really anemic on life force. And then all the different traditions have different words for that chi or prana or whatever you want to call it. The sort of, I, I see it in my mind like this yellow blood. Like we have this yellow blood that's not a blood that maybe maybe acupuncture and things like that work to sort of channel this invisible blood that we can't find on a cadaver. And, and so we can tank people up with certain energy transfusion techniques. And I think that's absolutely valuable because if you are like, can barely get out of bed, you are anemic on life force, you have brain fog, your nervous system is in a dorsal vagal, frozen, dissociated, chronic state. You are not going to be able to tolerate internal family systems three times a week without transfusing you first. It's too hard. So I'm a fan of let's tank people up, help them feel better, and then go down to the depths and do some of the harder work and check with your nervous system. If it gets too hard, come back to the surface like the whales, taking a breath, splashing around, playing with the other whales. Dancing, ch- chanting, singing, engaging in various group healing, going to yeah, I'm place, going to places like Lord's, I had an absolutely magical experience there and did not anticipate that. It was such a transfusing experience to be with thousands of people who all came to this pilgrimage site with the intention of healing and bonded together around their faith in this place of deep humility. It was absolutely like, huge tearjerker. I just cried through the whole thing out of pure beauty. It's just- Uh, So I was going to say, what was it that you were feeling? Oh my God. I was so touched. There are like hundreds of people that come to Lourdes every day to be the angels of Lourdes. They're healthy people who pick Mm. up the pilgrims from the train stations and bring them in their wheelchairs and take them to their hotels and- And basically, you know, caretake them and mentor them through the whole experience and push them in their lines through the grotto so that they can touch the walls of the grotto where these allegedly magical healings have happened. And they can pray to the Virgin Mary and they can prostrate themselves in these places. And there's all these people that minister, that's the word I really felt, all these people ministering to the sick and putting them in the the baths and the sort of magical healing waters and all the stories around all of that. And they do a processional by candlelight at night, like thousands of people. And then they do a mass together
0: and it's just, I, wow. Mm-hmm. And wow. what you're talking about is some sort of energy field that's there. Is that what you're saying? And everybody's in it.
2: That's what it feels like. Like I have developed a certain somatic sensitivity that I can't explain scientifically, that when I am in a coherent field, and when I say coherent field, if you put us all on heart rate variability monitors, and if you put scans on our brains, and you measured what was happening in our nervous systems and in our hearts, we would have coherent heart rate variability and coherent nervous system um, regulation. And we would be in this sort of ventral vagal part of our nervous system together, like choirs do, they've done scientific studies on this, choirs who are singing together, or people in drum circles, or ecstatic dancers. There are these various kinds of religious and spiritual activities that have been part of religious, especially indigenous religious traditions forever. And if you measure those people, they tend to go into this coherent state. So my theory, is that if you put people on monitors at Lords, you would have a whole bunch of people who are in this coherent energetic field and I feel that as a sensation in my body that feels like a pulse that's like slower than my heartbeat. It's 50 beats per minute and I've, I can use that now because when I'm teaching a workshop and I've got a big group I did an event with like thousands of people at the Lincoln Center and so I really got to feel the feeling when that whole field got coherent. There are things we can do when the field is coherent that we can't do in an incoherent field. And really skillful healers can work with that coherent field in a way that is, that can be really impactful. And the beautiful thing about Lord is there is no healer. There's no cultic leader. There's no charismatic guru. The field, it's like the place itself is the field. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a big learning experience for me.
1: Can I ask you a little bit about energy? And I, you talked in your book about seeing energy, actually seeing energy around people. And Tricia, is, she can do a little bit of that. And I just want to know more about that. Gosh, so do I. <laughs> yeah, I figured you did.
2: <laughs> I, I have had a few... Mystical experiences during which I could see things I hadn't been able to see before, but it was fleeting. They were fleeting experiences. And so I'm glad I got an experience to see beyond the veil, to try to imagine what it's like to be Donna Eden, who apparently sees that way all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I would like, if I got three wishes from a fairy godmother, one of them would be to just be Donna Eden for a day. I just think that would be fascinating. Like my curious scientist part. And my artist part, because I used to be a professional artist, I would just love to be able to see what does the world look like if you're looking, if you're able to see fields, energy fields. Because for the most part, I don't. I see what most people see. I have other ways of sensing things that are not visual. I'm much more, I guess you might say claircognizant, if you wanted to use that, than maybe clairvoyant. But Yes, Donna Believes, and there's a whole section in there that she wrote. If if any of you don't know Donna Eden, she wrote one of the classic sort of energy medicine texts called Energy Medicine, and it's full of fabulous self-healing energy medicine practices you can do for yourself, on yourself, without anybody outside of you, and they're great, and I recommend the book, and she does a daily energy hygiene practice that I actually practice myself and we're gonna, Donna is going to be one of the people helping me do the sacred medicine pilgrimage on my book launch day. It's going to be Donna Eden and Dick Schwartz, the founder of IFS and Shiloh Sophia, the founder of Intentional Creativity and me. And we're going to be taking people on a virtual pilgrimage to experience some of those things. But Donna really believes that we're all born, that babies are all born seeing fields and that we all have that, it's not some special gift, and that it gets sort of conditioned out of us very quickly and we lose that ability. And she said that her mother saw fields and basically raised her children without, in a way that caused that not to shut down. Some people also claim that people with severe trauma histories, torture kind of abuse often develop extreme gifts in that way as a survival strategy to try to protect themselves in very dangerous situations. They might have developed kind of, you might say extrasensory abilities to see or to hear or to sense subtle energies as a survival strategy.
1: So Trisha and I spend a lot of time in nature and, and I think nature is so accessible to everyone. What did you find out about nature and earth rituals? Oh my gosh. When it, it's funny, I have this very
2: somatic reaction. When people ask me about that, it's, it makes me want to cry.
1: Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> because I am so grateful for what I have been taught by the indigenous healers that took me under their wing and gave me what I consider to be an, an incredibly beautiful gift. And it was. I feel very grateful that they have given me permission to work with these medicines, to share this material, to, yeah, I, I am speechless with gratitude is basically what I'm saying for what I have been given by these indigenous teachers from all over the world, but especially from the Karos in Peru and the Balinese healers in, the Balinese shamans in Bali. And the indigenous healers that I worked with in the U S the native American crow people, because what they really showed me is that there is a principle across almost all indigenous spirituality of something that the caros call I me or sacred reciprocity. There's this idea that we can only live in balance in any kind of balance, but especially with nature, if we are giving as much as we receive that if we're only feeling entitled to receive from nature in an exploitative or extractive way, we will get sick. They have believed that it's very related, that if we get sick, the first thing we have to do is examine where are we out of sacred reciprocity with nature. And so some of the first things they do is you're trying to make that right. You're trying to make apologies and make amends and repair your relationship with nature. So some of the ways that they do that is through these nature rituals that are very much energy transfusions. They're beautiful. They're like these incredible offering practices. Most re- religions and spirituality have offering practices, right? Like in my fundamentalist church, it was like, here's the gold plate. You put $10 bills in. They've really cheapened it to money. But in, in most of the indigenous traditions, you, you're not offering, you may offer money now, but you're also offering like flowers and food and like acts of beauty like nature mandalas and they're beautiful like if anybody's ever been to the balinese temples where you do the kanang sari it's like you put your there's flowers and incense and candles it's very like divine feminine like sen- sensual experience to do these offerings and it is so heart opening like you literally feel like you are bowing before the goddess and feeling the earth and like giving yourself to Pachamama, you know, Mother Earth or the Apus, Father Sky, the mountains. And in Bali, it's so I really got it. I I went to the Karos first. I lived in this Karos village at 15,000 feet in the Andes. And I got a first part of the transmission there. But in Bali, I really got that at every beautiful thing in nature. Every volcano, every lake, every beach, every hot springs, every big tree even has multiple temples. And you go through these series of temples to make these beautiful offerings with flowers and prayers and rice. And there's priests there to put the rice on your forehead. And you do this whole series of rituals as a way to ask for consent from the goddess of those things in nature and they believe they're very superstitious about it. They believe, for example, if you just go take a shower in a waterfall, if you just go jump in the waterfall, you're raping the goddess. That would be like non-consensual contact. And so the whole thing is consent. Ask the goddess, wait until you feel that moment in your heart where you feel the goddess has given you permission to go to the next temple. And then you do it again and you wait until you feel consent and then, and so you wait until you feel consent. And then you're in this place of like extreme gratitude, just like, you know, lovers where you're so lucky that both of you have consented to have this union. And there's this ecstatic merging coming together of two lovers. You're now in that place of like ecstatic union with the waterfall. And now you're being blessed with the purification of the water over your head while you're praying. It's wow.
1: Beautiful.
2: So you see why I start to cry when people yes, ask me. Yes. These because yes. It's like, wow. And so I was incredibly I triggered that. because when I was in Bali, Trump got elected. I was there for two months. And I was incredibly triggered. And one of the Balinese healers that I had met with before the election had told me, he kind of did his diagnostic thing on me and he's, you're not sick, why are you here? You're not sick, nothing wrong with you. And he said, except you have world worries on your head. He said, uh, no world worries, like you're fired. Spirits say you're fired. You don't have to save the world. (laughs) Like, And I was trying not to save the world and trying not to have world worries on my head. And then Trump got elected and I was like, oh my God, I have so many world worries on my head now. And so one of the things I did, cause I seriously considered expatriating and moving to Bali with my family. I did not want to come home. I was like, for the first time in my whole life, I do not feel like the United States is my home. And I decided not to do that because I decided it, this is the place. This is the nature. This is the land that I am the caretaker of in California. And I can't abandon the land that is the place of my origin just because I'm triggered. I need to stay on the land and pray on the land and continue caretaking the land that is mine to caretake and teach other people in my country how to do a better job. And so the first thing I did when I came home from Bali is I my daughter and I went to I think 13 national parks. And we pretended there were temples at every sacred monument which has have all been stolen from the indigenous people and there are no temples at any of them. And people just feel, they just rape the goddess all the time. They just feel entitled to take a selfie. It's just an Instagram opportunity, like for most people. And so we went and did the Kanong sorry at every sacred site that we could do it at 13 for two weeks. And that was the only way I could tolerate coming back to my country.
0: It's incredible how your curiosity, your scientific mind, your life experiences created these past 10 years for 10 years, you went out to do all these different experiences. Was it intentional? Was it like, okay, I'm going to go here. Now I'm going to here now, or was it sort of, you'd learn and then you would go.
2: The only thing that was intentional was, okay, it was going to be part two of the book of mind over medicine. And then it wasn't. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to make a whole book about this, I'm going to kind of do my own eat, pray, love journey, but I'm not going to be able to take a year off because I have a kid. And I can't just abandon my family. Liz Gilbert didn't have children, so she could do that. It's going to take me 10 years because I'm going to have to do a month, one year, and a month, another year, and space it out. And I knew going into it, I knew that part of what I was going to be practicing is using my whole health intelligences my mental intelligence, my emotional intelligence, my somatic intelligence, and my intuitive intelligence to be guided on this journey. I did not have a plan. And I don't even remember exactly what the first thing I did was, but it was, I knew from the beginning, all I need to know is the next right step. And then I have the courage. I need to have the courage to take the next right step. And then I will get the next breadcrumb of my pilgrimage. And it was always that way. And it was synchronicity big time, like flow states very magically. And one healer would send me to the next healer. And one person would make a recommendation to the next person. And it all unfolded in a very magical way, including that I had three trips planned to Brazil to go to John of God, and they all didn't work out. They all didn't work out. And now I look back and I was like, oh, thank you, angels, I had some kind of cosmic protection, because I could have been really seriously harmed, because I would have been exactly the kind of person he would have targeted as someone to kind of bring into the inner circle the way he did with my friend Jeffrey Rediger, who wrote the book Cured, or with Oprah. Like, these people got conned. Oprah got conned, and my friend Jeff got conned. And they're both vulnerable trauma survivors, too. And it's terrible. And I'm a vulnerable trauma survivor, so I could have been conned by that guy. So I'm really grateful that I was protected on some level. I certainly did experience a great deal of bystander trauma from watching other people get seriously abused by best-selling authors. I won't name names, but I I, I have in the past named names because I think it's dangerous what's being done out there in the name of self-help and transformation and healing. And it's been incredibly traumatic to carry that burden of bystander trauma. I've told some of my stories off the record to some investigative journalists. Because I'm like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in court or being a whistleblower. And none of these bad things happened to me. So I can't call the police. But there is criminal abuse happening all over the place. Like I have 30 people whose careers I could destroy with what I know. But I don't want to do that. That's not my job to just trash people's careers. But it's very disturbing to me, which is why I put that whole part two. I wanted to really educate the readers to, to have really freaking good discernment and to see right. all, all the red flags of predators.
0: You do that really well. And the way you describe your inner pilot light, yeah, the importance of really working on that and trusting that. My
2: last book with Sounds True was called The Daily Flame. That's 365 love letters from your inner pilot light to your like hurt inner children. So if if anybody's curious what I mean by that, I've been writing love letters from my inner pilot light to my hurt parts for now fifteen years. It's part of my wow. daily practice, and it dovetailed right into internal family systems. When I'm when I discovered internal family systems, I'm like, oh my god, my inner guidance system was doing internal family systems on its own before, before I moved. Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's just so incredible. There, it, we, it's beautiful that we all have this divine self. This Mm -hmm. divine, every religion calls it something different, Christ consciousness or Buddha nature or. Right. But we all have this. I love how Mark Nepo describes it as the incorruptible spot of grace where we were each first touched by Mm. God. Mm. And we all have that. And that part, it's not a part, that aspect of our being has the potential to be an incredibly effective healer, doctor, therapist, guru, mother, father, to all of our wounded inner children. And if we can trust that part, if we can trust that self and let it lead our parts, everything changes in your life. Like it is a total game changer. And that's what I had to trust going into this journey is that I had to trust my inner pilot light to guide the journey and work with all of the parts of me that got triggered along the way. <laughs> right. It was re- I spent tens of thousands of dollars treating the trauma of this journey. I had no idea how traumatic this journey would be. But one of my trauma therapists, she said it was so tender, it was so loving and compassionate because she said, Lissa, that inner pilot light sent you on this journey to save yourself. And I had no idea. I had no, that was totally like... One of my teachers, Rachel Naomi Remen, who's been my longest spiritual teacher, she's been my teacher for 15 years. And Rachel has told me many times that sometimes our soul, how does she say it? I don't want to misquote her because it's so perfect, but she says, sometimes your soul will grab you by whatever handle is sticking out and will do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Like we we, we think we're doing it for one reason. I think I'm doing it to write a book. Right. Right. But But I actually did it to heal myself
0: (laughs) right, from developmental trauma. And then in order to continue doing the work that you're doing, so then you're a a better teacher.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So like, I'm really aware that part of this journey taught me, Rachel uh, was in a cult. And so from the very beginning of my education as a student of a spiritual teacher, she would never call herself that. She's a doctor, I'm a doctor. She runs a sangha of doctors that has included our current Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, and they're amazing. It's an amazing sangha. But part of what she taught me early on is if you're gonna have any power in the public eye, you must cult-proof your communities. And now we're getting more and more you know, education in the public around that with things like the John of God documentary and The Vow about Nexium and Keith Raniere. And, the Conspirituality podcast and the A Little Bit Culty podcast. And there's a whole lot of cult education out there. And, and it can be a cult of one as the bad vegan documentary. I know the woman that was in that cult of one and it was horrible. Oh, really? What happened Yeah, This Sarma. I met her years ago at Pure Food and Wine, where the raw vegan restaurant she had in New York. Yeah. So. It's horrible what can happen to people when they when people with developmental trauma get hypnotized and under the coercive control of charismatic leaders or domestic abuse situations like the charismatic leader can be a cult of two in a marriage or a cult of five in a family or a cult of thousands in a megachurch or a cult of in, an online influencer like Christiane Northrup, who is running a cult and spreading COVID misinformation. And she wrote the foreword to my first book. It was like, what happened to this person? I admired her work so much. It was so, so painful to watch. But if you understand developmental trauma, then you can have a compassionate lens, both on the people who follow Chris Northrup and also on Chris Northrup. because that sort of sociopathic narcissistic injury is also a side effect of developmental trauma. We see it with Trump. That is another charismatic leader with the cult of of MAGA. So I think I really didn't understand that 10 years ago when I started this journey, I knew about narcissists and codependents and sort of the way the sort of 12 step culture talks about that and things like that. But I had no idea what I would learn in, 10 years about narcissistic, sociopathic, charismatic leadership. And as somebody who could become one of those people, it was that was what my therapist was saying. You did this to save yourself and your community, and the last thing I want to do is become a cult leader. Oh my gosh! Well, maybe the- I have a part that fantasizes about that. Yeah. Like, yeah. bring me diamonds. <laughs> yes, bring me my green juice. Let me
1: have all of you as sexual partners. Like, <laughs> well, let's hope. Let's hope not. Um, I'm kidding, but I know. But <laughs> this book, Sacred Medicine, is just a wealth of information, and you're going to help so many. People with your own journey of 10 years of researching all of these things and experiencing all of these things. And we just are so grateful that you came on our podcast. And yes. we, just, we wish you the best of luck with this book and just thank you. Yes. Thank you, thank you
0: for your work and for your curiosity. Um, thank we you. so appreciate it.
2: Can I say one last thing? Yes. Yes. Okay. I just want to say one last thing as a trigger alert to anybody who's going to go out and buy this book and read it. I just want to warn people that if you have been kind of in the dogma of scientific materialism, or if you've been in the dogma of like new age spirituality, this is likely to be triggering because what I'm asking people to do is to get out of a dogmatic It's my way or the highway, all or nothing, binary thinking, because that's what developmental trauma survivors do. They go binary. They go all or nothing, black or white. They don't have, it's very hard for them to have room for nuance and gray areas and paradoxes. And In the book, I talk a lot about the paradoxes of healing. And so I just want to invite people, if you feel a trigger because you're like, oh. Is she talking about me? Is she criticizing me? Like, oh, I did that. Oh, I've believed that. Oh, have I hurt people that way? To just be incredibly gentle with yourself and just be curious. Just all you have to do is just be a little bit curious about, like, if you've only done natural medicine and you've been like, you hate doctors, you do everything you can to avoid the hospital, but maybe your natural medicine isn't working for something that you're doing. Like, just be a little bit curious that maybe there are good, safe doctors out there could help you and that there might be a cure even in conventional medicine for you. Or if you've been in the scientific materialist, energy healers are charlatans, trauma therapists are just head shrinkers, it's only a pill, just give me my Zoloft or give me my penicillin or give me my chemotherapy, then maybe be willing to like, sure, get the surgery and the chemotherapy. But would I also be willing to consider seeing an IFS therapist to wonder like, What happened to my nervous system and my immune system and made me incapable of fighting off this cancer? Is it possible that there's some trauma related thing that made me vulnerable to this so that I can have a better chance of a good outcome? So just to be curious about getting out of your camp and like venturing, for a lot of people, it feels like venturing into enemy territory. But it's, And it can be enemy territory because there's good and bad actors in both camps. But there's also good actors in both camps I talk a lot about discernment. If you can use your discernment to find the, the he- healthy people, then we can use all of the tools in the world's medicine bag and maybe get some miracles that are, we've been able to be proactive about that. And that, The whole thing that started me on this was reading the 3000 case studies of spontaneous remission at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and being shocked that none of these case studies written up in medical journals, nobody ever asked the patient, what did you do? There's no curiosity there. And I started asking people, what did you do? And so did Jeffrey Rediger and so did Kelly Turner. And we've all been researching this stuff for over a decade now, Kelly and Jeff and I as allies. If you haven't read Kelly Turner's Radical Remission or Jeff Rediger's Cured, they are both
0: fabulous and they're fabulous people. I'm so glad that you're sharing that with us because it's so true. Look at everything out there and be open to what can support you and it's there. And I love what you're saying is that just, again, follow your inner pilot, your inner light and don't exclude anything. Kind of look at it, discern it and bring in what you know will serve you.
2: Yeah. And there's a whole section in there on how to do that with regard to the whole health intelligences. So what if we were able to access and work with as kind of a conductor self being the divine self being the conductor of those different intelligences what if we were able to make all of our decisions that way not just health decisions but what if we were making our work decisions and our relationship decisions and our political decisions and our social justice decisions like my god what could be possible then and i am an idealist i do have this very utopian part it's just a part of me and it can get a little, like I said, it can be a little gullible and naive and get me in trouble sometimes. But I do think there is incredible potential for not just individual healing, working, healing our own traumatized parts or healing our bodies, but collective healing. And that's, I just was interviewed by Rezma Menachem the author of My Grandmother's Hands, who's a black trauma therapist, t- doing, in my opinion, the best anti-racist work on the planet because it's so trauma informed and he's got a new book coming out called the quaking of America that is a harrowing book, but I recommend both my grandmother's hands and the quaking of America because like Resma on the cutting edge doing somatic experiencing and somatic trauma therapy work to try to help us like help us heal our nervous systems so we can do the right thing with regard to social justice. Even if a white supremacist has a gun to our head, like literally his work is about if you're a white person in Nazi Germany, are you going to become the Nazi or are you going to hide the Jews? Like, And to me, I just can't think of anything more important right now. Like, I want to be able to say I will hide the Jews. But my nervous system gets really scared thinking about what that would require. Am I going to risk my own life and the safety of my family in order to do the right thing if the U.S. goes to civil war? Which it might. This is no small thing. It's this to me, this book is sort of along with books like Resma's is like, this is what we're facing right now. And it's life or death. It is the species extinction or healing. And of course, all the nuance in between. I don't want to be black and white. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow. This is <laughs> there's a lot in this book. Yeah, <laughs> there is. Oh well, there's we just are book. so grateful for your
1: time and Lisa, all this information is really amazing
0: and it's gonna help people. Thank you. I know a it. lot of people. Thank you. So thank, thank you. you for having me.